1: And Plants on the Move Together, featuring Zach Elfers. Zach Elfers was raised in the Piedmont of the Mid Atlantic, but has traveled widely around the lower 48 states. He is a student of the plants who has learned from mentors, elders, and most importantly, from living outside, spending as much time as possible with the more than human world. His areas of interest include ancestral ways of subsisting, living, and knowing. And his work is focused on growing and promoting bioregional plants as food, medicine, and as the foundations of our subsistence economies, rather than the imported and ecologically destructive colonial agriculture. In this episode, I am joined by co-host Nikki Hill. Nikki has a degree in environmental science and has worked in restoration and agriculture. Currently, she invests her energy in wild-tenting efforts. We co-authored a zine together called The Trouble of Invasive Plants, which you can download for free at my blog. In our conversation, we discussed how certain ecological concepts are popular but flawed, the racist origins of anthropology, the forests of Laurasia and the Arcto-Tertiary geoflora, prehistoric and pre-agricultural human relationships with edible plants, the Wilderness Act, anthropogenic fire the question of whether fire is good or bad, disconnection from nature in mind and in reality, the conceit that science is absent of value judgments, and Zach's nursery work. If you like this episode, please share it on social media and subscribe to the podcast so you don't miss any future episodes. To support this work financially, you can make a one-time donation to username Colibri at paypal.me or at Venmo, that's K-O-L-L-I-B-R-I. You can also become a member at patreon.com colibri, where you'll get early access to new episodes, exclusive digital content, and goodies mailed to you. Now here is Zach Elfers, as interviewed by Nikki Hill and me. So I had just a short list I just wanted to throw at you just so you knew what we had on our minds today to talk about. And maybe we get to all this, maybe we don't, but the list is um, crop domestication and hybridization along trading pathways, the forests of Laurasia and the arctotertiary geoflora, floral assemblies surrounding old habitation sites, cultural burning, fire stick farming, it's good to be a barbarian. chestnuts (laughs)
0: i like that one (laughs) yeah
1: and and of course we want to talk about the future forest plants nursery and all the all the plant work you're doing so
2: wow that's a lot of topics
1: (laughs) yeah like i said i mean i don't know who knows if we get to all of it but that's that was our brainstorm so i love it i love it yeah
2: well um before we got into this conversation i was doing some thinking here and i was trying to imagine if there's like one sentence or one idea which kind of unites all of these topics I guess my my larger goal at least in having a conversation is more of a philosophical one I think there's so many things that our culture has told us are true that Mm -hmm. when you really get into the world of ecology and being present with nature and listening and seeing the way she moves and the way she speaks you start to unlearn some of these things that you've been taught and i mean we might talk about the myth of wilderness for example that's like a really foundational idea in our western culture right now where the transcendentalists like john Muir and the national parks system um so much of it i mean even the european settlers coming to this continent and believing that it was like a virgin wilderness that hadn't been um, basically degraded by, by human beings. That's a very, very flawed and even racist concept. Um, but you know, w- when you start to let go of that concept, you, you, it's like ecology, it's connected to everything else and you find it starting to tug against other concepts, which are flawed too. Mm-hmm. And I think some of that is like the concept of invasive species, even the concepts the the concept of domestication, um, a lot of these concepts are just really, really flawed from a, from an ecological perspective.
0: Yeah. It's like, um, I've been seeing a lot of those same things, just feeling being out myself and just in my own living and then research that I do. And that line is like so blurry to almost be completely nonsensical. Like I understand Mm that, um, as a culture and to live one's life, we're trying to find some kind of guidance or direction, especially together. (laughs) But um, I I think that those things maybe only are useful if we remember that they're very blurred lines that we're creating. (laughs) This Mm -hmm. is kind of where I'm at um, lately, yeah.
2: In in science today, we really love to categorize and we love to put things in boxes and and group them on the basis of differences. And I, I don't think that that's the way evolution works. Evolution really oh. thrives in areas of gray, and it's it's like that gray area where all the all the livingness happens, and mm-hmm. then. <laughs> you know, the scientists come by and they look at the pieces and they say, well, this, we, we can put this in that box over there and that, that other box. And there's definitely use usefulness to that. Um, but yeah, the, the real world is complicated and nuanced. Yeah. And subtle.
0: Yeah. We've had some conversations with some really awesome, uh, ecology researchers recently. And, um, talking to them it becomes apparent too that uh, science is not like a defined process either <laughs> it's not a defined um, practice it's at its base it should be uh, it's it's obs- continual observation correct but in that process this language making comes in with whatever we're doing we're like trying to create a language so that we can, relate to each other, (laughs) really, but um, the way that science is presented is different than it's understood when you're in it. Like, uh, people are still finding nuance, but then the language gets taken over by the culture and used in these ways that it wasn't originally meant to be used either. It was like just a budding concept to describe something, but now it's like loaded and has all this baggage that gets carried through the culture, and it takes a decade lag time or more to start to reinvent the conversation again. It's pretty fascinating, actually.
3: <laughs>
2: Definitely. That that actually is a really good lead-in to uh, something that I've been thinking about lately, is the origins of anthropology. Mm. Um, I, I was recently turned on to the fact that the word anthropology descends from a man named James Hunt who was a a British guy, and he founded the British Anthropological Society in the 1800s. This was around the time of the ending, the closing of the Civil War. So this was the 1860s. It was a time where, um, oh well, basically, the reason he started anthropology was to defend the idea of scientific racism.
0: It was all about
2: <laughs> it, it was all about like the study of man, like how did we become how did we go from these primitive, lowly people to the advanced, you know, white westerners that we are today? And it, it's interesting that this was happening in the 1860s because you know, over in America, we were having the Civil War, which it was definitely in part about slavery. That was a that was mm-hmm. a significant aspect to it. And here, here in Britain, or overseas in Britain, um, you know, that this was the the historical origins of, of anthropology as a, as a discipline. And, you know, since then, anthropologists, um, I, I think some of them are aware of this history, and some of them accept it, and some of them try to kind of deny it or, or push it aside. But um, and that doesn't mean that anthropologists are racist, of course. I mean there's a lot of really wonderful anthropologists out there, but that that primary framing of the discipline still has baggage in the mm-hmm. field that hasn't been worked
1: out.
0: Yeah, for sure.
1: It seems like there's a lot of ideas left over from about then uh, I often refer to that as the the Victorian. Age, you know, I think that was still within the Victorian age, wasn't it? The 1860s at the beginning, maybe or middle, but yeah. mm-hmm. and it in the popular mind, it seems like there's a lot of ideas um about science or about different things that still are kind of from that time, you know. Like 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 the lag time that Nikki referred to before is in some cases, you know, many decades long between between mm-hmm. uh scientific discovery or discussion and then and then how it is that the popular mind understands it or how it, how it comes out into the culture i mean you know a lot of things that have been known since the since the 1960s have still not gotten out into the popular culture when it comes to um you know origins of civilization and the neolithic revolution and some of the, a lot of the things that you talk about and that we talk about a lot of understandings are still stuck back there not realizing all the different you know, research that's been done then and all the new research methods too, because, you know, like, uh, things are being done now with, with, with genetics that that wasn't being done 30 years ago or 40 years ago. And now being able to see where things come from, from that, I mean, the stuff's really fucking fascinating, honestly, you know, and, uh, (laughs) and I feel like a, a lot of it isn't actually getting out to people yet, you know?
0: I've read, was reading this book. I'm still reading it, but it's called the next great migration. Uh, I forget the yeah. woman's name, but it's, it's a wonderful book. She's tying in uh, human migrations with other migrations and the history and the flux of it. But uh, she mentions in there that like tracking migrations of animals, for instance, they've only actually been able to do that since like 2006 or something to like fully track every moment that an animal is moving. So we have all these mm. ideas about how things migrate too, but it's very recent that we've even had the capacity to see what they're doing all the time. <laughs>
1: mm. Right, because of GPS and satellites and this kind of thing. Yeah. Right. Mm-hmm. Right. Because obviously we knew something before, but not on maybe on this on a scale that she's talking about.
0: Yeah, the scale of mm-hmm. like you know, continually watching them. Mm-hmm. Like you could get pings. I guess there was something about ping. I'm I'm not using the right terminology, but. Right. Um, where they were like getting a picture by different pinpoints, mm-hmm. but now they can see the whole thing and they're finding that,
3: mm.
0: you know, some of the migrations, they're not all doing it together. Mm-hmm. Some groups will like, some of them go this way and some of them go that way. And they never knew that they went that way before, uh, right. you know? Mm-hmm. <laughs> so it's just, it's was almost
2: a- as if every being is an autonomous individual and can make, huh. their, you know, <laughs> like, yeah, <right>? like, we <laughs> all have free will and we all choose. <laughs>
0: Yeah. It's not all predetermined. They're not just
2: acting on instinct like automatons.
0: <laughs> <Yeah>.
2: <laughs> our our perspective is is so myopic in so many things. Like it's so it's so short term and like, you know, some of us if we're if we're blessed enough maybe we'll live 80 or 90 years and like, you know, that that's a good while to sit and observe the world, but when you grow a tree that could potentially live to be 900 years old 10 times as old as you'll ever hope to live that's that's humbling
3: mm-hmm. and then
2: you, you realize that 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 900 year span that that tree lives is only a slice only a tiny little hair fallen from the scales of geological time and you know so sometimes when i'm walking Walking along a hillside, and there's like a little creek there, and you know the 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 rock is coming out of the hillside where erosion has unveiled it over the air, over the years, and you know there, there's trees growing up all around me. I like to think, what would the earth look like if I could experience a thousand years in a moment?
3: Mm-hmm.
2: The ground would be flowing like liquid. Right. We would be in a we would be in a turbulent, roiling reality and it it would be like we'd be like foam on the ocean Mm -hmm. and and really this is what we are on this planet on this pale blue dot we're just foam on the ocean and you know we're just we're just basically riding that wave where geology is rising up out of the earth with um, volcanic eruptions and tectonic activity and then there's the other force of erosion you know and and water is a very central player in all of this and it's it's such it's such a beautiful such a beautiful unfolding hmm. but we we so easily forget that there is this vastness to time that we that we aren't privy to and so we see the we see a native plant for example and we think we see it here now we know it was here 50 years ago because you know our, the previous generation remembers it, and from our from the evidence, we know it was here 500 years ago, mm-hmm. and then we have more evidence. We know it was here 5,000 years ago, so we call it native, <laughs> right? But but um, if we could peek beyond the ice age, and then beyond the uh, the last the last thermal maximum during the eocene you know so this gets into like the the arcto tertiary geoflora (laughs) so a lot of the deciduous trees that we have specifically like the hardwoods like the oaks and the birches and the sassafras and the um you know the, the linden trees and even some of the deciduous conifers like the tamarack and the dawn redwood and the bald cypress they actually evolved near the the north pole so Mm -hmm. during the eocene the climate was so warm that you had alligators and palm trees growing up in Nunavut like off of like Ellesmere Island and Heiberg Island which is if you you look at Nunavut on a map it's like one of the northernmost provinces of Canada, it's adjacent to like the Yukon and and, and Alaska. It's basically north central Canada, as far north as you can get. And Ellesmere Island and Heiberg Island are actually um, Arctic islands that are fully within the Arctic circle. And mm-hmm. they're coterminous with like central and northern Greenland. And in, in those days, the climate was so warm that alligators and palm trees could survive in that climate. So imagine mm-hmm. you're a tree growing in, the, in this climate and cold is not the problem. Cold is nothing to worry about at all. But what happens in the Arctic winter? It's dark. The sun, go, the sun goes away, it's very dark. Yeah.
1: <laughs> Months at a time so they, with no sun.
2: <laughs> right, and if, if, if your life blood is made by photosynthesis, it's like, well, what do you do? But may as well drop these leaves and go dormant and conserve my energy. And then when the sun comes back, I'll push out buds again. So that, that whole pulsing cycle where um, deciduous trees are growing and then dropping their leaves is perfectly timed for the Arctic winter. What happened is the climate started to cool. And as the climate started to cool, these trees started to retreat further and further south. And then they also found that this adaptation for low light helps them adapt to the winter. And mm-hmm. so, so now these now these trees like the, these deciduous hardwoods really thrive in areas where there's a seasonal cycle of cold. And uh, yes so I mean what what that teaches us is that evolution like we can certainly learn a lot of things by staying put. But we also learn a lot of things through movement and we learn a lot of things through change, changing conditions, changing habitats, change changing geographies.
3: yeah the the
2: history of the flora of this planet is a history of migration. and different adaptations are picked up in different areas. and as as movement continues to unfold and unfold, those adaptations compound against they compound upon each other. and what originally was an adaptation for, low light conditions becomes an adaptation for cold winters.
0: Yeah. I think that's a, a fascinating point to bring up is that uh, evolution is not necessarily linear. Like again, some of these ideas are stuck back from their inception, That like evolution is this long drawn out process that has a particular relationship and a particular outcome and that it's in, incapable of being spontaneous which might mean that it has these genes and genetics, as you're saying, for one adaptation, but it can easily use them for another one, because why not? I mean,
3: mm-hmm.
0: if, if it works. So, I don't know, in, in all of these conversations lately, it just seems to me that it's, it's this linear, uh, this focus on a linear progression that seems to get in the way. Like, that's a part of the baggage mm. that happens, is it becomes mm. a very long, straight brush stroke instead of just trying to describe a piece of a process that can go many different directions <laughs> at many different times, you know?
1: Yeah. I, I read what you wrote about, about the, um, that, that was the arctotertiary geoflora, right. That you were just talking about. That was the, yeah. the treat, right. So I just, I just love saying that arctotertiary geoflora. <laughs> and <I'm>, and so <laughs> I'm, I read, I read you, I read where you're written about, written about that before and these plants came South and then you sort of described that, um after more changes happened that the the descendants of these of these species ended up being basically in three different places around the 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 world and in the eastern United States where you are in the um Siskiyous in the Pacific Northwest and then in um China somewhere
2: yeah so basically um the evolution of like the oaks, for example, and the the hickories and the walnuts and um, a a lot of other, a lot of other family groups um, that are, that are in that category of deciduous hardwood, they have their birth around 56, well, maybe 66 to 50 million years ago. And so 56 million years ago is considered like the, the Eocene is, is that geological age. And that's when the climate was really, really warm. And it, it stayed warm for millions and millions of years, but it slowly started to cool and slowly started to cool. So by the Miocene, um, 20 million years ago, it was still warm and humid around much of the globe, but um, was becoming more seasonal. But anyway, so the other thing that was happening around 56 million years ago is that all of the continents of the Northern Hemisphere were together. So oh. you had... You had Europe and Asia and North America were all one massive continent and that's what they call Laurasia. So um, um, Laurentia comes from the craton, which, which I'm currently living on, which is like the really ancient landmass of Eastern North America. And it's kind of bordered by the Canadian Shield and the, um, the Appalachian Mountains to the east. And um, and then, Laurasia, you know, Asia obviously is is Europe and Asia. So you know, this is taking on that that geological um, perspective again, where you've got tectonic activity and like the continental masses are not static. They're not they're not static by any means, you know. And we've got um, cratons, which are it, of like the um the the bulk of the the interior of the landmass. so there's a craton um out where you guys are i don't know the name of it and then there's one in the east and basically the rocky mountains when they rose i think they united the the two cratons of of what is now north america um and then there there's a craton up in um northern europe like scandinavia and the, the baltic states that that makes up a i think they call it um the the baltic craton and then there's one in you know the central asia and um a, anyway i i don't know all the all the cratons but um you know you, you can imagine a time when all of the northern hemisphere was together so as, as the climate starts to cool and this arcto-tertiary geoflora starts to move south, it's not encumbered. It, it doesn't have three different continental masses to disperse into. It just has mm. one okay. it just has one area, it just goes south. And so okay. it, it goes, goes across North America from the west to the east, and it goes across Europe and Asia from the west to the east and there's a lot of interchange for millions of years you know this is kind of like a like a like the boreal forest you know it kind of circles Mm -hmm. the whole globe and it's it's really similar all around the globe and that's no accident because it's it's left over from when the continents were together so Mm -hmm. you go to boreal forest all around the northern hemisphere and you can see pines you can see spruces you can see birches um yeah, as the continent started to fracture, this would have happened, um, I'm a little fuzzy on the exact date, but basically by about 34 million years ago, they were separate. Um, they, they had started to, to separate, I think around 66 million years ago, but there were um, probably some land bridges over the, the North Atlantic, which just like Beringia, um, once connected Alaska with, with Russia, There were land bridges over the North Atlantic, which basically spanned probably around the area of like southern Greenland, Iceland, Ireland, into the British Isles. Um, So those land bridges um, were, it's thought that they were around in the Eocene and also probably later in the, in the Miocene. So again, they were ephemeral, like the land bridge wasn't there until it wasn't, it was there and then it went away and then maybe arena just a few more times. So there's a lot of similarities between the the flora of the deciduous hardwoods in Western Europe and Eastern North America, for example. Like we have, like in the British Isles, there's Quercus robur, which is the the royal oak. And it's actually really, really similar to our Quercus alba, the Eastern white oak. And then here in the East, we have ramps, the wild onions, allium tricocum. And in Western Europe, they have rampsons, Mm-hmm. which are allium ursinum and they're a very very similar onion and then the european beach the Quark, the phagus sylvatica is really similar to our Fagus grandifolia our, our american beach um but there's also a lot of similarities between the eastern asian flora and the eastern north american flora so for example like in east asia they have ginseng they have they have um it, it's uh Panax, Um, I I can't remember the the botanical name of it out in Asia. Is it Quinquifolia
1: that's over there?
2: Quinquifolia is what we have. So that's the five-leaf ginseng. And in Asia, I forget what it it is. But anyway, uh, a a friend of mine was actually telling me really interestingly that in traditional Chinese medicine their their ginseng is thought of as a yang as a yang tonic whereas our ginseng in the east is thought of as a yin tonic mm-hmm. so she was she was saying that once upon a time they were united when it was the the laurasian flora flora of you know where, where all the continents were together but as they started to break apart they they split into the two reciprocal um halves of yin and yang you know so a lot of our, our Eastern forest. Um, I, I don't know how generalizable this is beyond ginseng, but I just, I find that so fascinating that mm-hmm. they're the same genus, <laughs> very closely related. I, I, I imagine they can hybridize. I don't know if anyone's ever done it, but one is yin and one is yang.
3: Mm-hmm. And
2: it's, it's just beautiful. Um, and you know, there's, there's a lot of other there's a lot of other things we can look at. For example, Solomon's seal is all around the Northern hemisphere. And that's one that can actually like, I think it lives in the Mediterranean too. So it's not strictly like the moist, humid forest, but She's so down here what, what happened is that, is she? Oh, yeah. beautiful. Um, as the continents broke up, the climate started to shift too. So, so during the Eocene, when you had this thermal maximum with the heat, there was a lot of humidity too so these kinds of trees that we're talking about these deciduous hardwoods really like they really like those moist conditions they like a good amount of rainfall they like a high amount of humidity so as the continents broke up that also changed the climate of of the continent you know it caused some of the interior portions of the climate to the interior portions of the continent to dry up in different ways so for example like I think that the Terran Basin and like the um, like a Central Asian desert was created through a combination of, you know, the continents breaking up, but also the Indian subcontinent slamming into Asia to co- to cause the Himalaya The Himalayas. Hmm. So that that's a very young mountain range. They say it's they say she's still rising. Um, and I think that again is, you know, the kind of thing that's happened in the last 30, 40 million years. So this, this um, but anyway, as the climate started to change, you had portions across the Western western parts of North America where the climate was no longer conducive to these deciduous hard, hardwoods, which like the heat and the humidity and the high rainfall. So they started to become more restricted to the, the Eastern areas where you, you got a lot of, um, you know that the Gulf Coast current is really important for um, creating those those warm and humid microclimates, and also the proximity to the ocean. Um, so yeah, the the and but then, <laughs> you know, you had um, with the the Miocene, things started to cool a little bit, but it was still the whole Earth was still fairly warm. By the Pliocene. So this, so the Miocene was started about 20 million years ago. The Pliocene started about 5 million years ago. That's when we really started to go into the ice age mode. And, um, when, when that happened, you had a lot of the extant flora die out. So for example, there was, um, tree of heaven, a and the, um, polonia were in the fossil record of north america and polonia didn't die out until five million years ago during the pliocene with the ice age the tree of heaven was around in the during the eocene throughout north america Mm
3: -hmm. so you know
2: nowadays these are these especially in the east in the eastern u.s are considered like two of the the worst invasive trees polonia and ailanthus and the reason they're considered so terribly invasive is because they integrate into our ecosystem really well. You know, Mm -hmm. you can have an old growth forest and polonia seed blows in or um, tree of heaven seed blows in and there's a chance they'll grow if there's a gap in the canopy or whatever. And, you know, they, (laughs) there's no studies that show that they actually outcompete native species. Uh, Correct me Mm -hmm. if I'm wrong. I don't know of them. And my observations have basically told me that no they don't outcompete native species but they can definitely make their presence known um but yeah m- maybe we should you know when, when we think about this geological perspective and we realize that both of these species are in the fossil record it makes sense that they live in this habitat this is mm-hmm. this is the kind of ecosystem that they evolved to be in they evolved to be in deciduous hardwood forest That's
1: do you, do you know of any in- Um, plants that have gone the other way from here to to China and those in these corresponding ecosystems?
2: That's a really good question. I I really don't. Um, It it tends to be more of like the the East Asian flora tends to come over here and establish itself. I'd I'd be real curious if if the opposite happens. I don't know.
1: Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. A lot of what you look into um, and that fascinates me is how plants have been moved around by human activity over time.
2: Yeah. I mean, I just, I just learned the other day from Robin Wall Kimmerer that the the most common uh, piece of food that's found in archeological sites in North America is hickory nutshells. You know, so that that's a species that human beings have a really deep relationship with. We've been, and archaeologically, at least eight thousand years, we've been relying on them as a as a staple food. Um, now, the the hickory nut now grows its center of diversity is in eastern North America. So people think that the hickory genus probably emerged, maybe in you know the, the eastern North American region. But you know it's 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 all it's all uncertain. What, so back back to this idea of like geological time, hickory actually. Was all over Europe before the last Ice Age, during the Pleistocene. It, it probably died out less than five million years ago, maybe even less than two million years ago, wow. which in geological time is the blink of an eye. So right now we're in this unique situation where the uh, the hickory didn't um, didn't repopulate after the Ice Age. It, it died out, but it survived in North America. So now we can bring shagbark hickories and other kinds of hickories to Europe and they grow really well. It's like reintroducing a native species. Mm-hmm. Um, but anyway, so the question of people moving plants, um, yeah, that's, that's, I mean, it's, it's a big subject and I guess I'd have to think of a particular plant first, but there, there's been a lot of anthropogenic range expansion. Um, I, I think if you look at the, the deep history of, of humanity and you you realize I mean first of all we're a really interesting animal we have these you know these these hands with these opposable thumbs we're able to do a lot of things you know there's other creatures that have hands like this there's like the rest of the apes there's a lot of the monkeys raccoons even possums um, but we have combined this opposable thumb thing with bipedalism and you know eyes in the front of our head like the predator. You know, so we're kind of engaging with the world in in, in that kind of relationship, and we're we're also really good biomimicers. So we're we're able to do a lot of things that other animals can do. For example, we can make dams after watching the how beavers work. We can make animal skins and we can clothe ourselves, so we don't need to grow the fur ourselves.
3: Mm-hmm. But
2: we can also plant seeds. We can grow trees. We can grow nut trees, fruit trees. We can grow cereal grains. We can grow root vegetables. We can grow all kinds of things. And on one level, every, every being is involved in what the ecologists call niche construction. Or if you get into like the permaculture world, Bill Mollison would say that everything gardens. Um, And um, you know, native people talk about the original instructions and how every every spirit of the earth is is basically given an original code which is which is what we do um, here on the planet so in in like the the broadest sense a being comes and eats a fruit tree they spit out the seeds and (laughs) the fruit tree grows right so there's a there's a question in anthropology, which is where, at what point did humans become intentional agents in that process? Right. Did humans, right. instead of just accidentally planting things where we happen to go along, when did we consciously decide that this was a life way that we were going to to carry forward? Um, my 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 understanding through my research and my my experiences is that we probably adopted that intentionality a very, very long time ago. I would say almost certainly more than hundred thousand years ago, probably even as old as two or 300,000 years ago. And, you know, now, now the new evidence is showing that anatomically modern humans are probably actually about 200,000 years old. You know, mm-hmm. when they were once thought, we were once thought to be maybe 40,000 years old. And, you know, now, now we're shown to be, far older than that.
1: I just wanted to really underline what you just said about intentionally working with seeds going back as far as 100,000 years because one of the more popular or common ideas I hear is that humans didn't know about the seeds how seeds worked and, until the beginning of the agricultural revolution.
2: Yeah, it's a bunch of it's a bunch of nonsense. You know, people, people talk about the stone age, but what they don't realize is that that was the plant age. It's just the stones are all that's left. You know, people have been making cordage, they've been spinning fiber, they've been making baskets, they've been starting fires for a long, long time,
0: mm-hmm. definitely
2: 100,000 years. And for someone to understand how to remove the bast fibers from tree bark, turn spin that into cordage, weave with it, and start a fire from friction, I mean, that's, that's a very serious and deliberate kind of intelligence. So to to then just completely turn a blind eye to the horticultural aspects of our existence and say, oh, yeah, we just accidentally planted that because we shot that seed out or because we just ate a fruit and the seeds just happened to drop where we were standing. I mean, it's 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 it does a disservice to us as as living beings now. I know we, we kind of, the three of us all share an animist perspective. So I believe that the intentionality goes all the way to the bottom. Um, mm-hmm. I'm, I'm not here to talk about what, you know, the, into- the intentionality of other species, but as far as it comes to our own species, like, yeah, it's there. <laughs> and mm-hmm. it's been there for, for a very long time. So how, how can we look at that scientifically? That's, that's kind of the the question, um, the, the question at hand here. Recently I've been researching the, uh, the Clacy's river cave system. So this is in South Africa. you mm-hmm. got a really unique ecosystem down there called the, the fine boats, which I guess is kind of Afrikaner for fine bush. Mm-hmm. And basically it it's, it's like a grassland ecosystem, but it's, it's dominant in Forbes. So th- there are some grasses there, but it's, uh, it's just a really interesting ecosystem because it, it kind of looks like a prairie or a savanna, but most of the species are are, are forbs. So For people grasses. who don't know what the
1: word forb is, can you just explain that real quick?
2: So a forb is kind of like a leafy herbaceous plant.
1: herbaceous meaning it dies back not every woody. year, not not woody.
2: Um, some of them are woody, but it's it's kind of like a leafy, you know a leafy plant. So a, a forb would be some like picture carrot leaves.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: that's that's a forb okay um you know versus wheat <laughs> which is which is a grass um so so anyway that this this finebose ecosystem is a narrow strip along the the south african coast and about 190 to 120 thousand years ago this is the cradle of where that we find the first anatomically modern skeletons wow. and so they, they tended to have um shelters in the cave systems down there. So you have like Sitsakama Cave, the Blombas Cave, the Places River Caves. And there's some researchers right now who are actually noticing that there's unique flora assemblages Mm. that surround all these caves where our first ancestors came from. And and actually down in South South Africa, the, the people who find rock art have learned to tune in to look for certain kinds of flora because when they can see that flora they're like oh that must be an ancient habitation site they go there they find the rock art and voila you know (laughs) (laughs) so it it, it's it's kind of this this interesting um, interesting factoid i guess or or, or confluence but so what these scientists are doing now there's like uh van wick and uh some other names I, i can't remember off the top of my head but They've looked at the, the charcoal record that surrounds these cave systems, and they've looked at ancient seeds that are stored in the soil. And because there's th- these these fine bose ecosystems are fire ecosystems. So they tend to have um, a seasonal cycle of burning. Cli- the, the climate's more like Seattle, where they don't really have a lot of freezes, but you know, occasionally you get you get some temperatures maybe into the 20s. But, you know, it's it's not really like, you know, it's more of like a kind of a maritime um, coastal climate, but it's temperate. And that's really important because there's there's a popular misconception that human beings originated in tropical savanna. And Mm -hmm. we actually didn't. We originated in temperate savanna. And that's 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 a really that's a really important point because it's these temperate ecosystems that tend to have a rest cycle. And so, so down, down there in the Places River cave area, um, the, the fine, there's a dry season and there's a, a wet season. So you get the seasonal cycle. So the fires tend to come during the dry season at very specific points in the year. And a lot of the, the, uh, plants that are adapted for fire ecosystems are like geophytes, like bulb at like tuberous food roots, you know that that starchy roots that grow in the soil. So fire comes and scorches the top, and they they resprout. And the fine ecosystem, I think, actually has the highest richness of edible root foods in the world. Wow. Uh, yeah. So it's like it's a very very heavily geophytic flora. And um, yeah, so so basically, these these scientists are studying what kinds of seeds were in the area going back 25,000 years ago, going back 50,000 years ago. And the way they're able to do this is because the charcoal preserves the seeds. It preserves the structure of the seeds. So they can actually identify that
3: um,
2: going back thousands of years. And basically what they found is that this unique flora, which is composed of 99% edible and medicinal plants for humans, has basically remained unchanged for possibly 50,000 years or more, and it seems to be uniquely situated around these areas where human habitations were known. And, you know, there's persimmon is one of the fruits that is found in that ecosystem, Diaspirus digena. Um, And there's, I I can't remember all of them. I, I I don't know the Florida, but it's like the, the, not the flora, the, the flora, but it's a lot right. of it's a lot of root foods and tree fruits, and um, I think there's even some like oak relatives, like the Fagaceae family members mm-hmm. in there. Um,
0: do you know? So yeah, uh, the. Do you, you said that uh, it's basically remained unchanged for fifty thousand years. Is what they're thinking? That habitat.
2: I, hypothetically. Yeah, exactly. they, they have, it, it hasn't all been confirmed. There's a lot of work that they need to do. But if if you go to academia.edu and look up Van, Van Wick, W-I-J-K, um, you can find her papers for free there. Okay. And so the interesting thing about the Clay, Clays River system is that what it appears to indicate is that people were practicing what we call fire stick farming possibly like 120,000 years ago. Wow. So basically this Feinbos ecosystem, which is a thin strip along the coast of South Africa, when it would seasonally burn, um, and a lot of that burning was anthropogenic, um, people would go and they would scatter the seeds of you know, the favored foods, you know, the root foods, the fruits and things like that. And then, you know, while, while the vegetation is gone, that would give a competitive edge to the seeds they were sowing,
3: uh-huh.
2: right? Right. And then, of course, they're using the digging stick to dig up these roots. So there's some tillage of the soil there. Mm-hmm. And so really, I mean, that's the bones of farming. Right. We're tilling the soil, we're putting down seeds, and we're engaging in some uh, ecological degradation, some ecological disturbance to kind of like either halt or um, take, give a break to succession so that we can get in there for a moment.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: and that it really looks like archaeologically that that's been going on for at least 120,000 years
1: that's fascinating that's just fascinating yeah i i, I also noted that you mentioned the, the number of roots there and i feel like um root crops as a food source are really um underrated in these in, in these discussions a lot you know we think about you know more you know older humans and and we immediately think about you know people throwing spears and and bringing down mammoths and this and that you know but it seems like uh root root vegetables were actually a very important part of the ancient diets
2: totally it seems like a lot of the anthropologists who have tried to put percentages to things tend to say that like 80% of our nutrition was vegetable matter. And of course Mm -hmm. a lot of that's going to be your staple roots. So it's really nice to like romanticize the mastodon hunters and all, you know, all all that stuff, but like it probably never really accounted for more than like 20% of our diet. Mm -hmm. That's an important percentage, of course, you know, I'm not, (laughs) I'm, I'm not knocking it, but it's like that, like we are not that's that's another myth is that like the the cavemen lived on flesh Mm -hmm. and i think there's even research coming out now that shows like the neanderthals primarily were vegetarian Mm
3: -hmm.
2: which just just totally totally flips the scale of you know what what we thought about our ancestry Um, But, but this, so this question of the origin of agriculture is then really interesting because if, if what we call fire stick farming is like 120 years old, or I'm sorry, 120,000 years old, (laughs) then what was the Neolithic revolution?
3: Hmm.
1: Right. Right. Um, And there are some differences. That's when they began using animals um, as part of the workforce. You know, like to pull plows, kind of thing.
2: Well, I mean, the 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 plow is actually a fairly modern invention. Like the the Sumerians weren't weren't used. I mean, maybe they were. I I forget when it was plowed, but I think it was when it was invented. I think it was more like a Greek, a Greek thing. Like it it came later. Like like the very first agriculturalists were doing fire stick farming. They were right. They were burning fallow and scattering seeds. They weren't. They didn't have plows. I mean, they they might have had like hand used bone plows like bone hose and things like that but it wasn't it wasn't a plow like we think of like something drawn on the back of a beast of burden Mm. that that was that's that's much more modern um yeah i've been doing a lot of thinking about this lately and I, i i don't think my my thoughts are fully resolved but i'm really intrigued by this idea that agriculture is kind of the natural byproduct of human population expansion. So, you know, e- even in the upper paleolithic, like 100,000 years ago, human tooth sizes were decreasing.
1: Oh, that long ago. Because
2: we Yeah, that long ago because okay. we were, we were cooking. We were cooking our food, we were grinding our food to make flours and things like that. And basically, because we started to cook our food, we were able to extract more nutrition from it, which also meant that we didn't need to chew as much. We didn't need, we didn't need jaws and teeth as strong as, as we did when we were eating a raw food diet. So it, at least 100,000 years ago, like there, there'd been a trend towards, towards smaller tooth size. Now, when the ice age retreats 10,000 years or 12,000 years ago, that's coincidentally the exact same time that we see a huge explosion in human population.
0: Right. So
2: during the ice age there was basically a bottleneck um, that we our species probably existed in for like 60,000 years where
3: hmm.
2: you know maybe global population was as small as like five or ten million. and we were restricted to very specific kinds of habitats. I mean for one, you know, not glaciated habitat. I mean, there's definitely evidence that like humans were traveling across the glaciers and doing all kinds of crazy shit for a long time, but um, (laughs) probably not in very high population densities. Right. Um, And then, so when when the climate started to warm, a whole lot of, a whole lot of area was opened up. And because we had this adaptation of fire stick farming, we could basically go anywhere and we could, we could make our subsistence. Now for the vast majority of our of our species history we were just working with native plants. We were we were intentionally gardening with what we found in that space. So we you know we found a good persimmon tree, we found the good root food, we would scatter those seeds. But as our population expanded and we that was this was out of Africa. Um there, there was this wave that kind of began I guess about 60,000 years ago. Um as we expanded out of Africa, we started to reunite with our long lost cousins. So like the Neanderthals and the Denisovans and we made love and we had children. And that's where all these like introgression events come from. Like the Neanderthals are us, the Denisovans are us. Um, the, like the, the, the human, the homo sapiens species is actually a species complex. We're like this hybrid species made up of all these Archaic and ancestral lineages that coalesced. We all got back together, and so now we're like this hodgepodge species, and that's that's so beautiful. Um, but then, you know, as as we as our population started to expand, and we started to establish like trading routes and migratory pathways and things like that, suddenly, you know, if you're gathering the seeds of emmer wheat in this valley and then you're saving some of that to to re to replant the following year and then you're trading with your neighbors from the next valley over and they're also gathering um, emmer wheat and they're also gathering einkorn you know and then they uh, they trade those seeds with you and now suddenly you've got um, different kinds of wheats from different geographical valleys growing in one spot and then so just like the human species is a hybrid species now the wheat is going through hybridization
3: mm-hmm.
2: and that's that's opening up the genome and it's basically creating this thing that's never been seen before it's like this more cosmopolitan species we've become the legs of the plant and now that we're the legs of the plant um you know we we went on the trajectory of creating what is now called domesticated species. And right. we also did it. We also did it with trees. Like for example, the the Persian walnut and the apple were both brought all over Europe and Asia and where they started to hybridize with different, well, more in the case of the apple. So apple our domesticated apple was known as malus domesticus. Hmm. Um, but we, but that, Malus domesticus, domesticus is actually a um, it's a hybrid made up of Malus orientalis, Malus sylvestris, which are two European crabapple species, and then there's Malus sieversii, which is a wild crabapple species from from Central Eurasia, and then there's there's also a portion of the genome that we're not sure where it came from. It wow. could be other crabapple species in there. And basically, you know, look at what happens when something hybridizes, you know, you get a, you get a whole lot of variability and variation, which is opened up in there. And, um, you know, some apples will be big, some will be really small, some will be really sweet, some will be really sour, some will be green, some will be red, some will be yellow. And this is why apples don't come true to seed (laughs) Mm because it's, it's a, it's basically a a hybrid swarm. Um, Uh Mm-hmm. And so we we really call it malus domestica as as shorthand, but it's it, really what it is is it's just like this hybrid swarm. And if you look into the the genetic history of basically every so-called domesticated crop, it's the same story. Mm-hmm. Like um, like Asian rice, for example, was when um, Ariza Navara and Ariza Rufopogon were brought by humans into the same area, we're able to hybridize, make this other thing. And then eventually down the line, that's become like Asian rice, the Ariza sativa subspecies Japonica, but then it was brought to the Indian subcontinent where then I think it might've rehybridized with one of its ancestors or <laughs> something. And it became Ariza sativa subspecies Indica. So that's the brown rice. Um, um, so the Asian rice is the white rice and then the Indian rice is the, it's the brown rice. And uh, yeah, I mean, it's it, it, a, a lot of our, there was a period of like several thousand years where there was pre domesticated cultivation happening. I mean, some of the earliest cereal grains we know of that were in archeological sites like 107,000 years ago in Mozambique, humans were eating sorghum. Mm-hmm. And of course, it, w- it was wild sorghum, but um, you know that that's that's a long time that we've been eating grain, and that so you know that I, when rethinking and reframing this issue of well, what is domestication? What is the origin of agriculture? Then it kind of inevitably leads into this question: well. What is civilization, and like, why are we in this mess?
1: <laughs> I because yeah, we are in a mess. I think that's what a lot of us are trying Absolutely. to figure out by looking at this. You know, <laughs> yeah,
2: <laughs> yeah. I, I think Joseph Tainter is a really good voice in in this conversation. So he wrote a book called "The Collapse of Societies" or uh, "The Collapse of Complex Societies," or something like that, and. Basically, his thesis is really simple. It's that um, cultural evolution proceeds to a point where it's become, it, it's achieved a certain level of complexity, and then there's a crisis. And because that complexity is is inherently unstable, it collapses. And the the process of collapse is a process of rapid simplification. So uh-huh. if if once upon a time we were doing fire stick farming, but we were growing 80 to 120 to even 200 species, you know, it's like, well, yeah, the bones of agriculture are there. And like, you know, if you, if you want to, if you want to be really precise and, you know, or or if you want to recognize the spectrum that's there, if you want to recognize the, con- the continuum that's there, you can say, okay, that's agriculture, but it's very, very, very different from what we see today, which is where people drive around with tractors and they plant thousands of acres of corn, wheat, or soy, or, you know, whatever um, other row crop, you know, so h- how did we get to that process? Um, I I really think it's just, um, it, it's collapse. It's collapse of traditional ecological knowledge.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: And, and it's kind of like a little bit of a, it, it, it's a little bit of an interesting situation because we've been so invested in creating our own kind of ecosystems that when there is, this collapse that occurs socially, culturally, ecologically, our children who are left in the rubble of that are growing up in what we already created in previous generations. So it's, it's it's kind of the classic case of losing losing the forest for the trees. It's like we see this ecosystem that's around us, and then we don't realize that there's a deeper level to it and that's that's it's pretty much what we've lost when we ceased being hunter-gatherers we um like our our palates were narrowed we and then that's the process of rapid simplification um yeah
1: so this (laughs) this is viewing civilization itself as a form of collapse yeah, absolutely. Oh, civilization wow. is... Okay, that's just amazing.
2: <laughs> that's what I'm saying. Yeah, yeah. You said that yeah. better than I did. So wow. civilization is the collapse of traditional ecological knowledge. Wow.
3: Okay. Yeah. I could because see if, that.
2: So I, I think this is going to be controversial in some of our circles, but I think agriculture is the red herring. Uh-huh. Like ag- okay. ag- agriculture... Agriculture, like we can look at it and we can see all the wrong and we can see all the backwardness right. that's propagated. But like if you look at the bones of the process,
3: yeah.
2: where you're, um, there's ecological disturbance, which actually the most diverse ecosystems on earth experience regular disturbance. Disturbance is really good for a bi- from a biodiversity perspective. So bare bones of agriculture is there's ecological disturbance, there's intentional um, sowing of seeds. And there's cultivation, your tillage, so that the soil is disturbed somewhat too, whether that's through a digging stick or, or a plow or whatever. So we can see the, those bones of agriculture, and that there's nothing inherently unsustainable about that. It's really the way that we do it, which is which is the uh, which is the problem, because we live in this world where biodiversity is our strength, and. Ecosystems want to become more and more biodiverse and they want to become more and more complex. So when you're taking those ecosystems and you're wiping the slate clean and you're reinstating something that's profoundly simple, like that's that's where you're opening the door to to problems. Mm
1: -hmm. So are you are you in some way even saying or describing agriculture as uh an effect rather than a cause of collapse
2: um i think it's both (laughs) okay it's kind of like the chicken or eggs in there right okay yeah it's it's definitely an effect but there's also causal there's there's also some some cause there too it's it's causing new things
1: right and and obviously pursuing it has had its own has been the cause of all sorts of different things at this point but but it is it is fascinating just to look at that transition still to me.
3: Mm -hmm. Yeah.
0: It's it's how I've seen it a lot. And it's occurring to me again is, is with that oversimplification or streamlining of diverse Mm -hmm. or dynamic processes. So like if you're looking at ecology of a stream, you start to see all the things that start to happen when you channelize it to make it more efficient. So it's not like the river wasn't going there to begin with, but now you want it to mostly go there and just go there and you ignore the, the continuity with the bank or something like that. You mm-hmm. start to cut out pieces in order to make it happen faster, more uh, more volume, more, more density of food or whatever. So I was trying to wrap my head around this concept that you were bringing up with civilization being the collapse too, being a part of the collapse is more complication Is that what I was hearing you say?
2: Well, it's, it's, it's both. It's, it's, it's a simplification. So I'm I'm thinking that like a biodiverse ecosystem is complex. It's complicated. It's complex. It's got all these different trophic relations. It's not linear. You know, everything is interacting with everything. So that's, that's a very complicated system. And then when you wipe that slate clean and you grow wheat, that's a simplification. Yeah. Um, but like with everything, there's always the, there's always the opposite way you could look at that. You could you could see all of the labor and input that has to go into maintaining this really simple ecosystem as a really complicated process because really the simplest thing you can do is leave off, right and let mm-hmm. nature be what she's going to be. So yeah, there, there, I'm, there, there's definitely that paradox there and you know I, I, I like yeah. to, to play with those paradoxes, but you know this this is already confusing enough. <laughs> <laughs> like I yeah. said, ev- evolution thrives in areas of gray.
0: Yeah. Yeah. It's like over uh, over uh, streamlining processes, so streamlining in, uh, ecosystems, streamlining our bureaucratic processes uh, that ends up making it all feel more complicated uh, also seems to lead to this fragmentation. So like that could be the sense of feeling like life is so complicated now is that this piece is over here. This one's over mm-hmm. here. This one's over here and we're trying to put that <laughs> together
3: yeah.
0: again, but but it's I was like too heady or something. That's what it come around to. It's
2: yeah. It's and you, I think that's that's the impoverishment of our of the ecology that we've created. Yeah. You know, like like suburbanization and urbanization and the fact that the countryside has been like violently converted into agriculture. Whether that's um, ranching and cattle or like annual row crops, or I mean, even like apple orchards, you know, like they've been, the landscape has been converted into desolation. And, Mm -hmm. you know, the the suburban areas and the urban areas are food deserts. And then you go out in the countryside and you're like, oh, finally, I'm in nature. And no, it's a food desert, you know, because it's all... It's all agriculture, so like we've really, uh, we've really done a good job of destroying our own habitat. Yeah. If, if we were in a context um, where we grew up as children, and we learned 80 to 100 species, we learned that there were 20 or 30 edible root foods that we could harvest. We learned that there were 20 or 30 tree crops that we could harvest from. We learned that there were like 100 um, culinary herbs and medicinal herbs out there in the ecosystem. That's where traditional ecological knowledge comes from. It comes from experience more yeah. than anything else. Right.
3: Mm-hmm. Yeah.
2: And so the, the problem is now that we've destroyed our habitat, the children who are being raised in the rubble that we've created, they there's no way for them to get the experience that they need to, to recover that traditional ecological knowledge. Mm-hmm. And so, like that, that's why I've taken it upon myself to like Find all of the the native edible foods and medicines of my bioregion, try to get them planted out in like concentrated areas, like that, that, that is restoring ecosystems too. You know, I'm not just making plantings like here's mm-hmm. a specimen tree here and here's a specimen here. No, like recreating these ecosystems where they should be in places where they're on conserved land that they can live for hundreds of years without being destroyed because then the children of the future can come and they can actually see what a real food forest is. The food forest is not, is not something that like human beings just create downtown. I mean, that's what we're doing now and it's beautiful, but like a food forest is a co-creation with your bioregion. You know, it's, it's what's already there. And of course you put your intentionality to it and you work alongside of it. Um, And, you know, we, we act as, as the legs of the plants. um, but uh, yeah
1: I mean, and at this point in, in history, if uh, one is, is taking on that kind of work in whatever area of the world they are really, um, it's gonna look different than it did before too. Well like like the area that you were you're at has been really heavily impacted by colonial culture. oh Yeah. Last 400 years or, or whatever it is. Right. So, yeah, we
2: don't even know what the ecosystem was before, <laughs> before right, the, the, right. the white people came here, you know, cause right. we did such a good job of destroying it. You know, um, and th- that's the kind of stuff that I really seek out. You know, I, I find that like, like, like mama's milk and <laughs> I just drink up all I can because there are, have, there are, it, it's still there. It's, it's still there. You know, I can go, like you go to Franklin County, Pennsylvania, for example, and there's a valley that's called Path Valley. And why do you think it's called Path Valley? Because uh, the the Tuscarora passed back through there on their way from the south to the north when they went to to join the, the Haudenosaunee um, up north. But they, uh, that was a, a trading path for a very, very long time. And that, that region of Franklin County, Pennsylvania is actually the northern edge of the Shenandoah Valley. So, you know, it was a, it was an ancient trading path for thousands of years. And probably even before humans were there, like that was a trading path. That was a pathway for bison and for elk, you know, like that we, all the beings tend to follow along similar pathways. Like if you ever make a trail in the forest and then you watch that trail you notice that all the deer start to use that trail, <laughs> mm-hmm. you know? So, so there's, there's really no distinction, you know, like you go to Kentucky and like the bison went from Salt Lake to Salt Lake to Salt Lake, and guess where the humans went
3: oh. <laughs>
2: from Salt Lake to Salt Lake to Salt Lake. <laughs> <laughs> they were not only following the mineral salts, but they were following the bison and, you know, it, it, it all made sense. So anyway, the path Valley in Pennsylvania, there's a, there's a Creek that flows through there. The, the Konakachi Creek. I wish I knew what that word meant, um, but I don't. Um, and there are shell bar that grow all along that Creek. And mm. that's, that's a disjunct species in, in, um, you know, South and South central and Southeastern Pennsylvania. It's, it's not, it's not supposed to be there. I mean, it, <laughs> again, it's like what is supposed to be there and what isn't supposed to be there. So there is some limestone there. They really like limestone geology. So they're thriving there and all that, but like, center of diversity for shellbark hickory this is like the midwest that's more of like the west side of the appalachian mountains not the east side of the appalachian mountains and um but anyway it grows the thousands and thousands and thousands of trees all up and down this creek all throughout the path valley and what else do i find in association but i find pawpaw trees in the understory of the shellbark hickory and i find ramps in the understory of the shellbark hickory mm-hmm. There's persimmons that grow in that area. Um, the persimmons tend not to be right up along the creek. They're a little more upland, but they're they're all there. And then I find there's a chinkapin oak and black walnut and all these amazing edible species. There's groundnut and, um, you know, like lots of big wapato patches used to be there before agriculture drained the wetlands. And, um, you know, shellbark hickory is like the largest nut in North America. It's really rich in fat. It's really tasty. Um, if if you're doing fire management or, and managing those woodlands as savannah, so the trees are more widely spaced, they bear annually. So mm. that they'll, they'll bear a nut crop every single year. They don't really have the masting cycle that the oaks do. Mm. And they were like the, they were one of the keystone nut crops of of the of the native people. Um like William Bartram when he was traveling through the through the south among the, the Creek peoples, he noted that like people had like multiple bushel baskets full of hickory nuts that they would just they always had on hand. Um so I mean you, you can see the the bones of these these cultural ecosystems, these these cultural landscapes there's they're still there. Um, the Lower Susquehanna River is another one that's really, really close to my heart because I kind of grew up in, in that area. So like, if you go to Hartford County, Maryland, Cecil County, Maryland, uh, Lancaster County, Pennsylvania, York County, Pennsylvania, there's this is what, what's considered the Lower Susquehanna River area. So it's actually like a, it's kind of like a gorge.
3: Hmm.
2: Um, and it's it's a non-navigable river. So when the when the white people came, actually, the first the first place that John Smith met the Susquehannock when when they came before establishing Jamestown was Garrett Island, right at the mouth of the Susquehanna River. And Garrett Island is an extinct volcano. But anyway, that that whole area, the lower Susquehanna River is just loaded with pawpaw, with persimmon, with groundnut, with wapato, even American lotus grows there. Wild rice grows there. Um, there's harbinger of spring, Ergenia bulbosa, which is very similar to like the Western biscuit roots. It's like a carrot family member. Mm -hmm. It's like Lomation piperi or Lomation gormanii. Like if you go to the Columbia river gorge right now and you see those tiny little flowers that are just like the size of a penny, Mm -hmm. that's, that's Ergenia bulbosa. So that's, that's along the lower Susquehanna river. And that's a species that comes from the Midwest too. It's not supposed to be here. It's not supposed to be on the East side of the mountains. And then there's um petroglyphs there. The the largest complex of petroglyphs in eastern North America is on a rock in the lower Susquehanna River and it's got bison tracks on it.
3: Oh, because wow.
2: the bi- the bison used to come through that area because prior to the white man like a lot of the uplands were savanna. It was fire managed savanna and prairie. So there's a lot of prairie species that overlap there too and the um the bison would come out to the west or from the west and they they were all over the lower Susquehanna River region. Um, there's sweet grass that grows near there. Um, mm. And yeah, I mean, like all, all these species are, are there in one place and that, that's no accident.
0: It, mm-hmm. It's not
2: an accident at all. Um, if you look at the, the archeology, span I'm sorry, the, the anthropology. So there's a, there's a creek in the lower Susquehanna River region called the Peckway. And that creek is named for um, a branch of the Shawnee people known as the Peckwe, the the, the Now, if you go to Ohio, there's a town called Pequway.
3: <laughs> P
2: E. They spell it differently, but it's it's the same it's the same name because the uh, the Shawnee people followed the bison from the west over the mountains into <laughs> into the lower susquehanna re- region where you've got the piedmont and so you're getting out of the mountains and the foothills and then into the valleys and so they, they followed the bison there and they brought they probably brought harbinger spring with them this little carrot family member they, they probably brought shell bar kickery with them that used to grow all over those those river hills too and uh yeah, they, (laughs) the, -hmm. the place name still, still reflects that. And, uh, the the lower Susquehanna area was like a a meeting ground for a lot of different people. So the, the members of the Powhatan Confederacy would come up out of the South and then the, the Iroquois peoples from the North would, would come down. The Lenape would come out of the East. And then the more like the, even like the Lakota peoples, like not the Lakota proper, but the Siouxan speaking like that family, that, language family group they would come out so that was like the shanks ferry people um and um, other piedmont tribes that were similar to the tutalo and the saponi they would they would come out there too so it was kind of like it, it was a meeting grounds there
0: mm-hmm. yeah, yeah i think i think that the you know the the point you brought up earlier which what i was thinking about as well uh in many different ways but the direct interaction is like the piece that we're missing right. now. Like
3: mm-hmm.
0: I've, I've been doing research to try to help people understand land management options. And it's a big learning curve for me too. And a part of me is like, there is, there's no one way to do this. Like yeah. really, there really just isn't. So I'm trying it's to It's all like, about help.
2: intuition, you know, <laughs> yeah. like you, you, you've developed a proficiency for something and that, that just means that you've developed an intuition for it. And, Yeah. It would just be so wonderful if we could all just intuitively interact with the landscape and do what's right. Yeah. For for each moment in each place.
0: Yeah. And maybe we would get more of a picture together if more of us were given ourselves and each other the space to be there and do that. Like this is the, this is the part that frightens me or concerns me. Um, I'm not really frightened. it's just what's happening but but concerns me with like too many rules about how we're supposed to engage with ecology like so people mm-hmm. have a natural inclination to want to respond to something to respond to the world around them we're We're fed all of these ideas that things are just in absolute ultimate collapse at any moment, like that's so much to be raised with
3: mhm
0: without also giving space for people to directly interact again without all of those ideas in their way. Like these ones are all bad. These ones are all good, but no meaningful reason for that other than it wasn't here before. You know what I'm saying? Like
2: Mm -hmm.
0: that's, that's the part that I,
2: I I find that people tend to treat the science of ecology as more of like a formulaic thing. Yeah. There are axioms. It's almost like mathematics. It's like, well, two plus two equals four and this is just the way it is but like ecology doesn't work that way ecology is all about dynamic interactions which means that there it's not a static thing like you can't you can't go into a native ecosystem and say this is a native ecosystem it's like well Uh that's an ecosystem that's present right now Mm -hmm. that's really all you can say and even like evolution itself we could there's a really dumb and stupid way to state evolution. And that's a tautology. It's you know, that which survives, survives.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: That's what evolution is. It's just, it's just survival. It's not even survival of the fittest. It's just what continues to live and what continues to, to go on.
0: Yeah.
2: And I, I think ecology is, is really similar. It's like, there's a really dumb and stupid way to state ecology, which is just everything alive. Mm-hmm.
0: <laughs> <laughs> yeah,
1: yeah. I mean, everything alive, and and that in, that includes us, and that includes exactly. yeah, us, us being in there, you know. And that's what I find inspirational about you know these stories, like like you were just telling, you know, is because it shows that well that we can, you know. There's I feel like there's uh, a lot of messages we get these days that are about you can't or that we can't or that's impossible or don't touch or you know, there's where we're in a place where there's kind of a cultural discouragement of even trying to find these things again.
3: Mm
1: -hmm.
0: Mm -hmm. It's like a a cultural feeling of fragility. Like we don't Mm -hmm. quite want to touch anything because it's only hanging by a thread. And I, I kind of been wondering about this for a while now, because my experience spending a lot of time camping is not that it's all falling apart, actually. I mean, it's not sticking my head in the sand either. Like, yeah, there's some big problems. There's a lot of shit coming down the road, mm-hmm. you know, but like there's also this other thing happening all the time. There's this resilience, you know, I'll watch the moles put seeds in their cheeks and watch, you know, like go way down into the ground. And I don't know the last time they came up with that same mouthful of dirt that has those seeds in there. They might've been down there 30 years
3: mm-hmm.
0: or longer, but they're just not, I don't think the rest of life is, playing by the rules the way we're trying to in that way where we're making up this
2: life is really good at being anti-fragile and yes. real real ecosystems that exist on earth are really good at being anti-fragile
3: mm-hmm.
2: and our civilization is not anti-fragile our civilization is the definition of fragile
3: yeah
2: and I, I think when that's when that's your baseline experience like it's it's easy to adopt that mindset and project it into other areas of our existence but yeah I mean it, it's just like what what I was saying about how like those ecosystems which tend to have a medium level of disturbance tend to have the highest level of biodiversity
3: mm-hmm. it's
2: like you know obviously if you're like bombing it every single week like that's too much disturbance but again if you take a hands-off perspective and you're trying to minimize all disturbances that's that's also harmful is it like there's a sweet spot in the middle and yeah. that's you know life is all about balance and so how, how do we find that balance mm-hmm. in in this world that's so out of balance and that's that's a really tricky thing to do
1: At the very beginning of our conversation, you mentioned um, the concept of wilderness, and I think you're referring to the idea that led to the Wilderness Act, and that is where um, lands are supposed to be preserved, you know, as untrammeled by a man and this kind of thing, you know? And I've had a couple different people push back against the concept of questioning this at all and saying... That something like the Wilderness Act is something that should not be touched. I mean, I, I look at something like the Wilderness Act, and I'm like, well, I feel like it's time to be making exceptions for the people who lived there before. You know, like, go ahead. I mean, it's like let me just say one more thing, yeah. which is just that, <laughs> which is just that, like, yeah. okay, the the people who put the Wilderness Act into place were like seeing this just like industrial scale destruction of of. Of everything, you know, and they were trying to put a halt to it, and I really appreciate that part. A part that okay, let's put on the freaking brakes already. You know what I mean? Yeah. And I'm like, just not touch it. And I feel like okay, as a first step, let everybody out. Let's not touch it is good. But I don't feel like that's the what That I feel like that's only the first step and not the destination. I guess is what I'm saying.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: Yeah, I mean it's it's a really complicated issue because like on the one hand, like. I'm grateful that we have the preserved spaces that we do have. Right. Like, I certainly don't want to just say like, Oh, well, maybe that was the wrong mindset. Let's just take those preservations away. Like, no, we don't want to do that. Right. But on the same time, at the same time, like, first of all, all of this continent is stolen land <laughs> and, mm-hmm. and the national right. parks are no exception. I mean, they're are arguably more stolen, right. Cause it's, it happened in much, much more recently. And, you know, through, official government policy. So, um, you know, I, I, think in the very least we should be returning, um, reach, we should be allowing the native people to come and repopulate that area and, you know, live, you know, I mean, that's, that's, that's their land. Um, but then, you know, once you allow that it opens up, I mean, legally it opens up a can of worms, legislatively it opens up a can of worms and like, I don't care. Like, that's not my problem, but, (laughs) (laughs) but, but it's like, well, if they can live there, then why can't we live there? And like, yeah, there's also validity in that too. Like why? And and, you know, this is the whole problem when you take human beings out of the ecosystem, when you try to put them back in, it's really messy. (laughs) Right. (laughs) You know? So this, this is like, it's, it's going to be a a really uh, messy process and, Mm -hmm. Um, I I've, I've really found a lot of inspiration lately from the Milpa system of Mesoamerica because the, uh, like the, the Mayan peoples were, they were doing agriculture. They were growing corn, beans, and squash, but that was just the first thing they were growing. They were growing through all the other stages of succession. They were planting 80 to 120 species at once. Wow. And, and then as their gardens grew up, you know, for the first, two three four years they were able to harvest the annuals but then the perennials start to come online and the fruit trees start to come available and then the the nut trees and then finally the future forest canopy trees um and uh it's so inspiring because that that shows like a cultural package again they're able to do this because they still possess their deep traditional ecological knowledge right they know what they know what all the native species are of their region so when they go into a area and they cause disturbance by doing a slash and burn to to initiate a new garden um they're go, then taking a, a reverent mindset first of all you know they they recognize that the harm that they've caused is not only selfishly for for their own subsistence but that it ultimately has to be returned to the mother again and so if you mm-hmm. look up like even all, all all across like north america and even into the northeast like in maine like the Penobscot had the story of the the corn mother and it tells the same story you know about you know the 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 corn mother is sacrificed and you know her body is raked over the earth and then it's burned up so that's talking about the slash and burn process mm-hmm. and then mm-hmm. And then the seeds of all the beings are planted among her bones, and she gives she leaves with a promise and says, "You know, so long as you remember me, I will continue to bear um you know abundance to to right. you and your people and so I love that word remembrance mm-hmm. because like like we were talking about earlier, where like your potato patch is over here, and your you know, grain patches over here and your houses over here and your wild space is over here everything is just like all spread out Mm -hmm. it's dismembered yeah that's what we've done we have literally dismembered the earth we have literally dismembered our ecological communities we have literally dismembered our communities and on the psychological the personal level we have literally dismembered our psyches and our spirits and so the, the task that's really before us is remembrance which is the opposite of dismemberment. It's taking right. all those pieces and putting them back together into something. And so I really like that MILPA package because it it shows us a way that we can do ecosystem restoration while also getting our subsistence.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: While also, you know, farming and you know doing the things that we need to do in this culture right now to survive and to have, you know, quote unquote productivity on the land. But if the downstream effect of our actions could be a future forest, then yeah. that's a much more holistic and um, remembering way to, to live. It's more relevant for, for my ecosystem because I'm you know the eastern temperate forests are really rich. Like we've got good soil and like a lot of rainfall, so we tend to have like a lot of biodiversity crammed into small little areas. So it, it makes sense to do that that kind of like milpa gardening on like an acre at a time and then just rotate through the landscape. Right. Whereas out west, it's more of an extensive landscape. You know, it's more, mm-hmm. um, the biodiversity is just spread over a larger area.
0: Mm-hmm.
3: Right, right.
0: Yeah, I just, um, I just wanted to share uh, along the lines of remembering, there's this uh, Gila red corn that's been grown in this valley for a very, very long time. I don't know how long, I don't know the story all that well. I have to ask about it again, but um, it almost disappeared. It's this beautiful dent corn. And um, this randomly, this guy who had been researching old corn varieties came through this valley and saw it growing uh, at somebody's yard. The Seeds of Change farm used to be here, but I think he found it somewhere else. And he was like, I've been looking for this red corn for a long time. I didn't think it still existed. And so he shared the story with the people in this valley about what he knew about the history of that corn and more and more people started growing it in the valley. This was maybe 20 years ago. And so now that corn has made a local resurrection in the small little valley. And um, I got to plant some, well, I didn't plant it, Calibri did, but we got to see it growing this last year. And he said that she germinated very quickly, like within a few days. i soaked
1: soaked the seed overnight and then it came up in like 48 hours the first ones came up you know mm -hmm. and i was just astounded i hadn't seen corn come up this quickly and i'd planted a different kind of corn on the same property a couple months earlier and it would have been much slower going but there was definitely the sense of being around this corn that well, cause you know, you, 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 plant seeds that you got from a seed company and the first round of seeds that comes up are, that's the seeds that will come up in this new area. You know, not all of them do. Cause they're like, where the hell am I? You know? And there was, there was no, where the hell am I, uh, you know, vibed this corn at all. The corn was just like, Oh, here I am. Okay. I'm growing. And like, I'd never really, it was a different sensation than I'd ever had with any other garden vegetable before. Yeah. Cause the, the, the plant was just home already, you know? And, um, yeah, it was, it was, it was, it was fascinating. And, and the other, the other experience I had around that coin is that I'd soaked it overnight. I bought it out to plant it, and I'd already prepared the, the rose and whatever with irrigation out there. Oh yeah. Yeah. No, this was really <laughs> interesting because I never had this experience before. And I, and I had the corn in my hand, I'm about to start planting it. And then I'm like, wait a minute, I'm supposed to say a prayer first, you know? And I'm like, wow, okay, (laughs) this is interesting. Cause I, you know, I I was raised Catholic and I, and I I have a very strong rejection of that whole thing and that whole idea of prayer, but I know that that's not all that prayer is, you know? And so, so having the urge to pray, I I mean, I don't know when I've ever had an urge to pray, you know, like, but it came into me really strong. I'm like, wow. Okay. Mm -hmm. So then I, I went and I got some, you know, some homegrown tobacco. We'd grown a few years ago and I just did, I was there by myself and I just did a, an offering with the tobacco and smoked some in ceremony and 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 just made something up on the spot and then felt like I could I could go forward. But I'm like, wow, okay. So even with a domesticated plant like this, there's like something really special going on, you know?
0: It was well, yeah. It did feel like she remembered it here, and like it was the most talkative corn patch I've ever been in. Like even if there was just the lightest breeze. Hmm. She was making tons of noise and everybody else I've talked to in the Valley who grows her, They're like, Oh yeah, she talks a lot. Doesn't she? And I'm like, <laughs> okay, like this is not yeah. just me. This is like uh-huh. some.
2: She was so grateful to be noticed and recognized. Yeah. And appreciated, yeah. and cherished. Yeah.
1: yeah.
0: This is a thing with her. Yeah. <laughs> and, and, and delicious
1: corn too. Really yeah. delicious. Yeah. yeah. I've, I've heard and it you prefer- said
2: that like the, the beauty of species like corn and like some of what we think of as like hyper domesticated species is that they're that way because we married into their family
1: Mm. that's pretty Mm -hmm. yeah i feel like the moment in in history that we're at at this point that that we have just this thread that's left connecting us to all these older understandings and older perceptions and older ways of living and i i feel like I feel like it's such incredibly important work to make sure that that thread doesn't break at this point. Mm -hmm.
2: Yeah. What I'm trying to do locally and um, a a lot of my, my friends and associates um, we're, we're all on board with trying to just bring back a revival in like the native nut trees. So we're all about planting shell barks and shag barks and chestnuts and black walnuts and, persimmons and native plums and native hazelnuts and you know all this stuff because in in our ecosystem like it's if you you leave things alone it tends towards forest there's definitely like a lot of room for savannah and prairie in this ecosystem but it, it depends on a lot of fire and in our ecosystem with our high rainfall that generally means anthropogenic fire um so yeah, I, I think the trees are such a wonderful keystone for our, our whole ecosystem, and if if you can, if you can plant the forest, so many of our root foods grow in the understory of the forest, and then you you know the, and I'm not saying that the areas of savanna and prairie aren't as important because they're just equally they're equally important, but. I think that the trees are just such a tangible thing that speak to people. Like people can sit beneath a tree, you know, and they they can appreciate it. It's I think it's harder to appreciate, um, at least in this ecosystem, it's harder to appreciate a savanna or a prairie because you really have to tune in to something really delicious. It's like the the, the quickest way to our heart is through our stomach, right? So like mm-hmm. if you're in a savanna and there's ground nuts and lily bulbs growing everywhere. It's like, yeah, that's great food, but like, I, it, it, it's, yeah. <laughs> so that, yeah, that, that's, that's where I try to reach people. is just, it <laughs> is just by how wonderful this food is. And like, that's, that's why we develop mutualisms with these species in the first place. So I, I try to steer clear of language of like domestication and instead focus mm-hmm. on mutualism because that's, that's what it is.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: Now, most of the species that we interact with, that we have mutuality with, can also survive on their own. independently. There's, there's a very small few that have trouble reproducing without us. But even that, like, I'm not convinced that that's really a thing that's universally applicable.
0: It's mm-hmm. like, yeah,
2: if you take a GMO chicken, like an industrial chicken out of a chicken house and expect it to survive on its so own, it's not. But like, as a species you know, that they'll, they'll, they'll be all right. You know, Mm -hmm. if their numbers are high, it's like even wheat and rice, like reseed themselves in Tibet and China and like feral populations that just keep on going and keep on going. So like, these are like two of the most domesticated grains we often, we we commonly think of and like, even they can do it. So, you know, I, I, I think it's, it's just that often these like domesticated species are so closely involved with our manufactured habitats where we maintain the level of disturbance that we tend to not see them elsewhere because that's just the niche that they've adapted to but if we suddenly step out of the picture and they're just left alone like they're living beings you know they're gonna they're gonna find out a way they've they've got a lot of inherited wisdom in those genes Mm
3: -hmm. they've got
2: um you know they they go back to the same origin that we go back to, you know, like we, you know, they, they go back to the, the genes of the first land plants are in them. And we share, we share a lot of our genetic makeup with all these domesticated species, you know, going back even to bacteria and endosymbiosis and all these things. So like if, if we leave the picture, they're going to be all right. They're going to find a way. Um, but yeah, so I, I like to think about mutualism.
3: Mm-hmm.
1: Have you been um, you've been experimenting with fire on your own out there too, haven't you? Yeah, mm-hmm.
2: totally. Yeah, it's it's uh, it's really beautiful to walk with fire. I and I I like the phrase walk with fire because that's the kind of fire you should be lighting. Something that's just so so appropriate and so under control that you can just casually walk alongside of it and stomp it out or tamp it out as you need to and Mm. and just like when the conditions are right and and I pull off a burn properly it can take like two hours to burn across a quarter acre that's Mm -hmm. that's a long time for not a lot of space and so it's just it's nice to just sit out there and watch watch the the thatch and the leaves burn up and just walk with the fire um and I use it I use it for a number of reasons. Um, now that I'm doing like the shifting agriculture, the swiddening thing, like the milpa system, I was talking about, I'll often burn off my fallow, and I'll come into like new new lands that I haven't haven't cultivated yet, and do slash and burn, and then burn up the brush, and you know all that stuff, and then that opens up the ecosystem to receive seeds. So generally, actually, I would be burning about now, like March is one of the best months because the snow starts to melt, the temperatures start to increase, that causes things to dry out a little bit, and we're just like a few weeks away from from things greening up. So it's a really ideal time to burn off, sow your seeds, and then it pops very, very rapidly and, and just goes in through the whole whole cycle of succession um yeah so i I burn on private lands and at least where i am i've been able to just call the local fire dispatch and just say hey this is what i'm doing and you know when the fire's out i'll give you a call and let you know it's out and they're like okay cool and Mm -hmm. you know i i do that and uh, it's always good to have a buddy or three with you and you know you got to be aware of hazards but it's it's not dangerous it's 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 kind of like tree work to be honest it's like being an arborist can be really dangerous because like things can go catastrophically wrong, but like, as long as you're aware of the hazards and you're, you're tending to those, like, it's very, like it's, it's, it can be very routine, you know, and Mm -hmm. you don't want to get, you don't want to become falsely confident with that and get lulled to sleep. But um, I I think we're working with fire is a lot like that. So I'm I'm often burning small patches um, almost. I've never really by myself, I've never burned more than an acre at a time. Mm -hmm. Um, it's it's always less than an acre Um, yeah i mean with with a larger crew like i've helped participate in controlled burns for like natural lands and places like that where it's part of policy and i'm just a person on the ground and you know we'll, we'll have several people and you can do you can do a burn that covers like acres and acres and acres like hundreds of acres and that's really cool to watch, but that's um, that's not what I'm doing. I'm doing small mm-hmm. scale burns.
0: Yeah, I've been. And really it, it's
2: it's really yeah.
0: I would like to play it, with. It's really with that. yeah. Play. <laughs> <There's Yeah>. <laughs> Go ahead.
2: I mean, yeah, it's it's a lot of fun. I mean, I uh, I was pyromaniac as a kid, and I guess <laughs> i still am.
0: <laughs> so was my brother, and now he's a firefighter.
3: <laughs> huh,
0: that's a coincidence.
3: <laughs>
2: yeah. But it, it's really wonderful to watch the the as things unfold in the wake of fire. I mean, you make biochar and you make ash, which neutralize the soil and raise the pH. And what that does is it makes certain macronutrients like calcium and phosphorus more bioavailable to plants.
3: Mm-hmm. And
2: calcium is really important for creating rooting structures and fruiting structures. So basically mm-hmm. your root crops are gonna be bigger and sweeter and your berries and fruits and nuts are gonna be larger and more nutritious. Um, yeah, so it, the, the fire has has those, those wonderful benefits for the soil microbiology. And of course the, the biochar kind of acts as like a, a condo for mm-hmm. microbial life and it can live, they call it rec- recalcitrant, in the soil like it, it doesn't really change its form for a very long time so it, it can stay in that structure for thousands of years in soil like like i was talking about earlier with the charcoal that they found around the places river cave system and um this is how terra preta was created in the amazon for example and of course what they call terra preta in the amazon is all over north america too we just do oh, really terra preta. oh okay. yeah and there, there's so much agriculture and development that it's all it's all been painted over with a broad brushstroke, but like they talk mm. about when, have you ever heard that like when the first Europeans came to the continent, there was like 40 inches of topsoil yeah. or like yeah. like 40 inches of black topsoil. Like that's, right. they're, they're talking about Terra Preta because a lot of the, the first areas that were settled by farmers, by European farmers were Valley areas where native people had managed the land for, for so long. And it's basically where their old forest gardens and savannas were. Mm-hmm. Um, and then if you go out to the Great, Great Plains, like that's black earth all the way down. Uh, I don't know how far down and part, not all of that is because of anthropogenic fire. There's uh, natural fires played a role in those ecosystems for a long time too. But that black soil is, is partly glacial, but it's it's also heavily pyrolithic.
0: Cool. Yeah, we'll find little bits of biochar in the soil here. Like the people left who lived here before had a biochar maker. Hmm. I haven't played with it yet because I was kind of wondering about biochar in this kind of desert. Or if fire was a thing here, I just didn't really know yet. I wanted to burn the weeds because they don't decompose here. So there's piles of middens, hmm. piles of brush from, I don't know, a decade ago. Yeah. <laughs> it doesn't mm-hmm. really break down here. There's too dry. So I was like, maybe a little bit of spot fires would be cool, but I don't know. Hmm. I'm also afraid because yeah, there's so I, much I don't of know the-
2: fire in. I, I don't know fire in your ecosystem like I do out here. I mean, I, I remember that there are vast stretches of like sandy, barren soil where you are. And I, I mean, obviously a fire isn't going to carry across that. Supposedly, yeah. like supposedly the word Shoshone is tall grass people. Hmm um and I don't I don't know if that's true I I read it um and they would burn like the riparian areas which is where the tall grasses would be and um kind of like the the rich habitat where there was a lot of thatch and things that were combustible that could be carried um and of course the the fires would also like they would burn up over the mountains just like the wildfires do out west mm-hmm. now and they would burn through the pinion juniper and and sagebrush and stuff but um, yeah, I, I think native people also were really careful not to just like wantonly unleash fire
3: yeah in the sure.
2: ecosystem, especially in like brittle western ecosystems
1: How long ago was it that um, humans started using fire intentionally? Do we know?
2: That's a good question. Um, It was about, from what I can gather, it was at least 120,000 years ago that we developed an adaptation for smoke inhalation. And that was because we were (laughs) routinely cooking over a campfire. Okay. Um, Fascinating. um, But that doesn't mean that we got that adaptation then. It just means that's the latest possible time we could have gotten that adaptation. Mm. Um, we, I, I, th- I think we've probably been using it for close to a million years. I mean, if you look at wow. the, the archeological site of Peking man, 500,000 years ago, this was a, a homo erectus supposedly, um, he would, there were the charred remains of uh sugar berry or, or hackberry were found hmm. in, in his grave site. So he was like cooking hackberries, um, So he must have, he must have known how to, how to
3: use fire. Yeah.
1: Right. Because I know that, you know, people talk about how um, using fire allowed humans to eat meat more frequently than they were able to before. I've also heard that fire is what allowed us to eat more root vegetables, that a lot of the roots (laughs) are not edible until you cook them.
2: Um, Yeah. Well, there, there, we did, also get an adaptation for consuming starch oh,
1: okay okay so
2: that's another adaptation that we we gained no no more recently than 120 thousand years ago again it's like when did we first get that I I don't know um, but the whole meat issue I mean you don't really need to cook meat <laughs>
3: um.
2: Um, I mean especially fish like right. fish or still eaten raw and um but i i don't think that people i don't think humans or apes were really actively hunting the way humans were until we had mastered fire because it was it was the mastery of fire which allowed us to survive in savannah rather than being like arboreal um apes like gorillas they have the they're shaped the way they are because they have a really big gut, because they eat a lot of raw food, because right. they live in a rainforest. Right. And it was it was really the invention of fire stick farming, which allowed us to come onto the savannah because we could we could find the same nutrition in geophytic root foods that that grew among the tall grasses. Um, among the widely spaced trees and uh yeah i mean often the way evolution works is that we set out in a new direction and then we find a way to adapt to it later (laughs) (laughs) so like there was probably a period of time possibly several thousand years long where humans were eating brutes eating the starch from roots and eating meat and things like this and 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 Um, inhaling smoke from cooking fires without having a gene to digest starch in a special Mm -hmm. way, without having a gene to inhale smoke in a special way um, that, that, you know, I I don't know when that happened. Mm -hmm. Right.
1: Right. Right. Cause you know, uh, in the, the, you know, the circles that that we both kind of run around and that we all kind of run around and I mean um, uh, you know, people point to agriculture as being like a major you know, the Neolithic in particular as being a, a a major shift. And then other people point at fire as being like the major shift, you know?
2: Yeah. Fire was definitely a major shift. It was, it, that's what's enabled us to reshape ecosystems like we have never done before.
1: Right. Right. And except for that one bird in Australia, there's not really anyone else who does that. You've heard about no, that, not right?
2: really. Yeah. There's like a kite. I think in Australia, that <laughs> it's a, it's a predatory bird. Uh-huh. So it eats rodents and, uh-huh. uh, and other things. And whenever there's a wildfire that breaks up, it'll take burning sticks and it'll move it around the landscape to create more fire. Right. Because it, because it, um, it catches critters that are running <laughs> away from the flame.
1: <laughs> Who are running away from the fire.
0: Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> like a kitty kind of It's kind of a
1: cat like behavior almost isn't it yeah
2: (laughs) yeah i mean you bring up a really interesting question because it's like it's kind of a moral question it's like is fire good or bad
1: (laughs) right right (laughs) and Mm
2: -hmm. uh yeah i don't have an answer for that i mean it's it's what it is it's what our species does it's how we've survived for hundreds of thousands of years at this point, it's what enabled us to basically go all across the globe. It's what enables us to live in ecosystems that are basically outside of a rainforest. Mm -hmm. Um, I mean, presumably we could eat roots without fire, like raw food. But again, it's like, that's not really optimal for our digestive system. So if we all collectively decided to do that as a species, Probably in another few thousand years, we would develop a new gene for eating raw starches, you know, that, right. that kind of thing. So um, the, the question of morality is really interesting because it's like we, we have a feeling sense in this world and we feel that some things are right and some things are wrong. Some things are out of balance and some things are in balance.
1: Right.
2: Um, but but evolution is all about gray area. And like if we think that something's wrong, we're, we have the freedom to go in a different direction. And we, you know, we can, we can carve out a new destiny. You know, we can reject fire. We can, <laughs> we can say, right. okay, we're not going to use fire anymore. And right. we can try to find a way to live without fire. And we, we'll do that. We'll, we'll find a way to live. If, I mean, if we have the gumption to stick with that, stick with that uh, intention. Um, and yeah, who knows? Maybe, maybe that would cause us to split off as a separate species or something eventually.
1: Right. <laughs> right because it's really easy to look at something like those vast you know cornfields in the midwest or look at you know mountaintop removal or look at you know clear cutting of forests in the west it's really easy to look at these things and be like that's just so fucked up like we just shouldn't yeah uh, how how can you say there's no way to say i mean we just shouldn't be doing that there's no way you know
2: we shouldn't be doing that but again i mean i think the people who are doing that maybe they're lacking an experience of all the beings that live in those ecosystems. Right. And, and even if they're not lacking that experience, maybe they're numbing themselves to it. Right. You know, whether, whether it's through alcohol or whatever, like, I mean, that's, it's really rough. Like you, you can't, you can't do that kind of destruction and sleep well at night. (laughs) Right. You know, and, um, ignorance is probably the best defense you know mm-hmm. somebody just just doesn't know they they did it and they just didn't know but like the grief that those destroyed beings feel is something that we still feel we just if if we're ignorant of who they are what they are we don't understand where the grief we feel comes from yeah. it's like a free floating thing and i think that that's why there's so much depression right in western societies it's because we're feeling all this stuff we just right. don't we just don't recognize it we don't know where it comes from we don't know what that is
0: mm-hmm. it's
2: just like you know this this general feeling um, yeah yeah, totally. yeah so like the, the moral question is is interesting because it's like on in an embodied sense as an animate being in this reality like we relate to all the other beings and like of course i don't want to harm my kin you know we are all kin we're all we're all relatives and but there's also the other truth that we can't make our subsistence our daily sustenance except without shedding the bloodshed of creation as Wendell Berry would say Um, you know so that's that's part of like the uh, the spiritual contract that is made between predator and prey like if you if you look into the way some indigenous hunter-gatherers still hunt. Like in the Kalahari, for instance, they'll take an animal and then say a prayer along the lines of like, I will wait for you in the afterlife. Cause it's, you know, it's this recognition that like, you can't, um, you know, all, everything has consequences Right, it's it's kind of like karma. It's like if if you're not ignorant, if you know what you're doing, you have to reckon with the consequences of what you're doing. And mm-hmm. I think that that's a, that's another thing that's that's really lacking in in our culture in this Western culture. And part of it's because of the loss of traditional ecological knowledge. But because of that loss, there's um, there's a great level of ignorance that holds sway over over a lot of people and um that that ignorance can keep us out of can keep us away from the kind of reverence that is is healing or and maybe healing is the wrong word but the the kind of reverence that keeps things in perspective that keeps things in focus that keeps Mm -hmm. things in balance it's like yeah our, our role as human beings like the way we we subsist is through ecological disturbance, but that doesn't mean that we just, just disturb and disturb and disturb away and not even, you know, realize that, that there's a, there's a whole other, there's a whole other side to that. Mm
1: -hmm. Well, it's about consequences, obviously in part.
2: Right, consequences. Yeah, every action uh, has a reaction. Right. Every sequence has a consequence. And I, I think that that's you know, p- people who have that traditional ecological knowledge, that, that deep, you know, it's a feeling sense and it's a knowing sense. Um, you know, I, I, I wrote down here, if I could try to communicate something to someone, it's that we are deeply embedded in our ecology. And mm-hmm. we're, we're embedded whether we like it or not. Right. So how, but, and, and being embedded in our ecology, we're going to be deeply feeling, we're going to, we're going to be feeling so many things, but we're, we can also be deeply integrated. And that's basically to put the intentionality behind embeddedness. So uh-huh. we're already embedded. Mm-hmm. Right? right. But if you're just ignorant and you just like driftwood on the ocean, like, yeah, you're, you're embedded, but like, are you integrated? Uh-huh. And so to I think to, to be deep, deeply knowing is to is you know to to find that resolve to, to be integrated. So we are deeply embedded beings who are deeply feeling, but we can also be deeply integrated beings who are deeply knowing.
0: That's beautiful.
1: Yeah, that's really well put.
0: I feel like I've I've, I've thought a lot that like uh people will say things like we're so disconnected from nature and I'm like, well, yeah, sure. In one way, but ultimately only ideologically, like you can't actually Mm -hmm. separate yourself from nature. And that's what you were speaking to. Like you're still feeling things, even if you don't know where they're coming from, because you can't actually separate, you know, that's just an idea that's in the way (laughs) that you're something else, you know?
2: yeah exactly it's it's that separation and that's at the beginning of our talk i was talking about like the the philosophical baggage that's like behind so many of our terms and i think the reason why it's important to examine that and take a look at that is because if we can get beyond that then we can get beyond this language that's framing everything along separation yeah you know, like, like if, if we think that there's the wild, the, the wilderness on one hand, and then the domestic or the human sphere on the other hand, then so long as we keep using that language, we're perpetuating this idea of separation. Yeah. And just the same, like, you know, when, when we look at like invasive species and, and we think that there's such a thing as like an invasive species, then we're perpetuating this separation that, that on the one hand, there is something that is supposed to be there. Mm-hmm. And then on the other hand, that there's something that's not supposed to be there. And that's really close to saying that there's like a good, pure thing, and there's a corrupted, abominable thing. Yeah. And you know, that that gets you really dangerously close to de um, I, I was gonna say dehumanizing nature, but nature isn't human. But it's that same idea, like you take a person. And you dehumanize them and you say, yeah. you say, that person's bad. <laughs>
3: mm-hmm.
2: And it's because you've, you've started to treat them as an object, as something yeah. separate from your own experience that now you're, you free yourself up to harm them, mm-hmm. to cause suffering and hurt. And it's the same with nature. Like if we, if we're going to see nature as a, an unanimate thing, if we're going to see nature as an object if we're going to see nature as supposed to be one way and not supposed to be another way then we're really setting ourselves up to just continue to harm her over and mm-hmm. over and over again.
0: Yeah, the other the other part I found interesting around all of this is that there seems to be like the use of so-called scientific language or basis for invasives or well that's the one on my mind. But um There's this denial of a value judgment going on in there, which is this strange thing where you are making a value judgment, deciding that something shouldn't be this way and objectifying nature and all that you are doing that. But then you're trying to deny that that's a part of what's going on. It's a really strange (laughs) cultural thing. Mm -hmm. You know, it's, it's, it's like using languages. It's like using the language of science as an infallible it's like a religious book, actually.
3: <laughs>
0: like this is, <laughs> you just go like this. It's science is infallible. It's this thing that was written by these people. I don't know what's been translated, but I'm sure they knew got the translation right. Know what they're talking about. <laughs> so, <laughs> but the but the denial part of a value judgment being in there is the thing I've I've just been finding a little fascinating lately. Like that mm-hmm. denial is so strong.
3: Mm-hmm.
0: And so much emotion and resentment comes up when you trying to point out another way that, well, that's a value judgment. That's not actually just how it is. It's not just how it works, you know? That's interesting.
2: Yeah. I mean, it is a religious idea that, that idea that like nature can be categorized and put into neat little boxes and like discrete little units and all of that. Like that's a, that's an intensely Western religious idea yeah and i mean that that idea is foundational to taxonomy yeah and it's like it's 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 a problem if you look at it one way because nature thrives in areas of gray like there is no there is no essential difference between species
3: Mm -hmm. it's
2: all just one big spectrum and like you know (laughs) it's the, it's like the debate between the splitters and the lumpers. Like there's (laughs) some botanists that just want to like take everything and just keep splitting it down and splitting it down. And, Oh, we found this one gene that differs. So it's a different species, you know?
3: Yeah.
2: (laughs) And then, and then, then, then there's the lumpers who are like, well, wait a minute, all of these species can freely interbreed. And like, you know, they're all Mm -hmm. part of like this larger continuum complex. So like, let's, let's take these five species and reduce them to one, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know? So uh, I, uh, <laughs> I don't know. I, I, I don't even like want to get into either side of that debate. Cause it's no. I think, like no. the whole, the whole yeah. paradigm is the whole paradigm is flawed. You know, it's, it, it's like, yeah, it's, it's bookkeeping really is what it is. Mm. You know, it's like they're, it's not that there's no virtue in categorizing things. It's not like there's no utility in that. There's no use in that. That it's totally like a, just like a useless pursuit. That's not the truth. Like it, it no. is useful. We we do we do learn things from that. But like, again, it's like the old cliche. Like you don't want to lose the forest for the trees. Mm-hmm. Like you just want to make sure that you never lose that big picture. And in some ways, it's like the the indigenous names of plants. The common names of plants are like way better. Because you can just call it what it is. It's like, oh, it's an apple. Okay, cool. It's an apple. And then you look at it genetically and you're like, wait a minute, it's actually like at least four different crab apple species that come from these different regions. It's like, no, it's just an apple.
0: Uh (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) That's funny.
1: Yeah. Well, we've been talking for a while. I feel like maybe we could wrap it up at this point. Yeah. <laughs> you know, is there, I know that you do some writing and you do some nursery work and all this sort of thing. I mean, that it'd be cool to draw people's attention to.
2: Yeah, sure. I, I started a nursery a couple seasons ago. This will be my third season. It's called uh, future forest plants, uh, future forest So I'm growing, um, all, basically all the, all the tree crops for my bioregion, the eastern eastern U.S., and then I'm also growing a lot of root crops, native root crops, like groundnut, uh, eastern yampa, which we have um, camas, the eastern camas, and um, dwarf ginseng, and um, I also grow like medicinals and stuff like that. So you can find me at that website. And then I also write at nomadseed.com for the nomad seed project so that's where i've been invest like writing in-depth plant profiles and investigating like um more nomadic mobile mobile horticulturalist life ways and specifically like how how that is expressed through my my bioregion on earth and um yeah i'm also on social media too if you want. Look me up on on that.
1: Awesome.
0: Did you have some kind of a a tarot root?
2: Yeah, yeah. I grow tarot. So I I got it from my friend Yana who's in North Carolina, and she got it from a Korean market. Uh Maybe not directly, but that's that's where it comes from. So it's it's what they call a tarot Edo, which is like a northern adapted tarot. Uh and it overwinters in my climate so like even in zone six even in zone six i can leave it in the ground and just hangs out under the snow and everything and then just resprouts in the spring and keeps going and um it's also really low in oxalic acid like i can just boil it and it's cooked like i don't have to change the water or anything so i'm i'm really i'm really in love with it as a as a Mm. crop and it's like one of my main staples now i've gotten it propagate it out to the point where i can just like grow enough to last all through the winter
0: that's amazing i was eating a lot of taro in thailand like they would boil and fry them in salt yeah. like oh that's so good
1: <laughs> and the oh, plants are so just good.
0: awesome yeah
1: i'll have
2: to send you some i'm surprised i, was, I haven't
0: i thought about ordering some but the other yeah. things happened i was like oh, he has taro that no no, no no
2: don't don't order it. Just, I'll send it to you. Okay. <laughs> oh, that's the, that's the other thing about my nursery. You can go to future and order stuff, or you can just reach out to me because I always love to trade and to, to barter with people or whatever. So I always try to keep like the back door open.
1: Oh. Right. <laughs> <Sweet>. <laughs> thanks so much for your time, brother. Today was really awesome talking to you.
2: Yeah. Thanks for, Thanks for having this conversation and it's good to see you guys in person on this Zoom.
0: Yeah.
1: Voices for Nature and Peace is produced in the Gila River Valley, New Mexico, USA, on land that we acknowledge is illegally occupied Apache territory. The intro music is Zero G Yogi by Big Z with narration by Kelly Moody of the Ground Shots podcast. This outro music is Trip A, also by Big Z. commercial break narration by Nikki Hill. To become a financial supporter of this podcast and to gain access to members-only content, visit patreon.com slash colibri, K-O-L-L-I-B-R-I. For more information on Radio Free Sunroot programming, please visit radiofreesunroot.com. Thank you for listening. May you find joy in your own nature and peace.